fun to meet the council for a change, isn't it? A bit of a different setting. I've already had several suggestions that I should sit up here during the sermon this morning. I've resisted that with great resistance, and uh, actually we, we, we suggested that earlier today. So she's kind of the overseer. That's the part with the overseer of the service, the overseer of the kingdom today. So neither of us is putting anybody up on that seat. That would be awkward. Um, before I begin this morning with part two of the message we began last week, I want to give a report on Gordon Wright. Many or most of you heard that uh, on Saturday morning, Gordon had a heart attack. He was taken to St. John's Hospital. They immediately brought him into the catheter lab there and uh, discovered that he had three blockages in his heart. One was almost total, and they put a stent in to open up that artery. The, uh, another one was about 70% or so uh, blocked. They would probably, within a month or so, have to go back in and put another stent in for that. And then there was the third artery that was blocked about 50%, they believe, within a week out of the medication. The prognosis is really good. It's about as good a report as you could get. There was minimal, if any, damage to the heart muscle during the heart attack. Uh, Gordon is quite weary. He was overwhelmed with visitors yesterday. Uh, Sue has asked that nobody go visit today. Uh, Gordon would be happy to have your prayers and know that uh, his brothers and sisters at CCF are praying for him. And so we encourage you to pray for Gordon. Uh, he'll be hospitalized at least through the day, maybe into tomorrow. I don't know beyond that. But he should make a full recovery, and uh, we expect to see Gordon back here at CCF very soon. So uh, we ask you to continue to pray for our brother. A uh, very serious thing, but uh, glory to God, he's okay. We thought of how much worse it could have been. He'd been overseas when this happened, and that kind of quick and um, ex excellent medical care was about to culminate in death. So just continue to pray for our brother. I just wanted to give you that full report so the whole body knew. You know, so you don't hear just bits and pieces of what's happening, but you know the full report. So now it's interesting we've gone all the way through the service thus far, and nobody said a thing about Father's Day. So happy Father's Day. There you go. <laughs> Some of you may be disappointed that we're not really doing much to mark Father's Day today, and you'll be more disappointed still when you learn that the message today has nothing to do with Father's Day. Of course, if you were here last week, you already know that. But let me tell you what Gordon wanted to do for Father's Day at CCF. He asked in our elders meeting on Tuesday if we were doing anything special in the service today. And I said, well, gee, Gordon, you think we should get roses to give to dads in the congregation? And he said, no. He said, but, but personally, he said, he needed ammo. <laughs> All the elders got a good laugh from that, and we thought what that might look like if we uh, had boxes of bullets up here, kind of like we had the roses on Mother's Day, and asked the kids to come up and bring a bullet to your dad for Father's Day. <laughs> but we just laughed about it. We didn't go any further with it, didn't get the ammo. So that's why there's no ammo up here, so you just have to settle for my Father's Day greeting to your father. Now, last week, if you were here, you remember our primary text, and if you have your Bibles, you may want to turn to that again. We're going to be looking at that again today. From a little bit different vantage point. That's Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 through 17. Let me read that again to you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. 
So then last week we took a good look at the first part of it, the days are evil. We recognize that the days are indeed evil. Now I want you to watch how the preacher skillfully connects the opening remarks about bullets to the theme of the sermon today. Wouldn't it be nice if as we consider how we are to walk or to live our lives in light of the fact that the days are evil and all that means in our culture today, if there was a magic bullet that fixed all this, wouldn't that be nice? That provided all the answers to how do we walk wisely in the fact that these days are evil? How do we redeem the time? But the truth is there isn't a magic bullet, at least in the sense that we sometimes like to think of such a thing. However, I will argue that our response to the cultural challenges, the evil in our day that we looked at in depth last week, is a lot less complicated than we tend to make it. It's easy to preach to the choir today, so to speak. You know that old expression, preaching to the choir, all of you here today, and rail against the evil out there. But let's begin this morning by asking what I believe is a really important question. Think about this for a moment with me. Could it be that we make a huge mistake when we expect unbelievers to act like believers? Now think about this with me. Could it be that this is sometimes why we fail to gain a hearing or we're ineffective in engaging our culture? Now, before you get all worked up, let me add that I do believe there are cultural issues, and I'd argue that some of the things we even looked at last week, like same-sex marriage and abortion, are two examples of such cultural issues where Christians can and should be, perhaps, involved in the efforts to impact the culture on these issues because they are what I like to call common good issues. They impact a lot of people. They negatively affect more than just those individuals involved. But there's a difference between working within the acceptable means of societal change, which might include involvement in government efforts and voting and lobbying and the like, as well as, and for us this is probably even more appropriate, acts of compassion and mercy. There's a difference between those things on the one hand and then when we're sitting across the table from a friend or acquaintance confronting individuals who are not Christians with their sin. Specific things are not the thing we should lead with in relating to unbelievers. We cannot and should not expect non-Christians to behave like Christians. In fact, I'd argue that we should probably expect just the opposite. Why is that? Because they are slaves to sin. It tells us that in Romans 6. And they're just doing what comes naturally. Apart from Christ, we're all slaves to sin. It's only in Christ that we actually, truly have a choice not to sin. We can choose to no longer sin because of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Perhaps this is why Christians so often lose the public relations war in these cultural issues. Now, I fully recognize, and I want to mention this, I fully recognize that we can communicate everything just right in speaking the truth, and we can behave in a godly way, in a very winsome way, and still people might hate us, because sometimes the truth confronts things that people don't want to hear. But when we... Uh, sometimes label something as sinless that the Bible tells us is sin, 
people might still hate us, even if we do it just right. In fact, that's a promise that we don't often hear from Scripture, that people are going to hate us. We read in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Perhaps we should quit being shocked when we see Christians, or we ourselves, are persecuted. Yet when we, in our individual relationships, and make, let's make that distinction clear, when we're talking about our individual relationships with unbelievers, and we expect them to behave like Christians, I think we're doing what the old adage says, we're putting the cart before the horse. First comes the new creation in Christ, bought by the precious blood of Jesus. Then comes the new life, and new behavior, and new attitudes that accompany that redemption, the process of sanctification, that ongoing change in our hearts, which helps us to forsake the sin in our lives. So, Expecting non-Christians to behave like Christians is a classic example of putting the cart before the horse. The horse is the gospel. The cart is what naturally follows the gospel, our sanctification, that inevitable change which happens through our lifetime in our hearts and in our attitudes and behavior when we are truly redeemed. We can't put the cart before the horse. I believe that this is at least a part of what it means to walk wisely and redeem the time in this evil age. It's an important part of what it means to make the best use of the time. As we read in Ephesians 5:16, yes, the days are evil. And no, as we explored last week, we should not participate in this evil or celebrate in any way this evil. We should not approve this evil. We shouldn't partner with this evil in any way. We need to walk in the light as Jesus is in the light. That means we must not let the darkness invade our hearts or our attitudes. This is something we must resist. We must resist, and in this way, we walk wisely. Yet there's more to walking wisely than just resisting the darkness. There's the bringing of light, right? Living in the world as his light bearers. It's easy for us when we look around and see all that's going on in our culture and we see the moral free fall that we seem to be in. It's easy to just throw in the towel, so to speak. But is that what God really wants from us? On the other hand, it's almost as easy to simply reject those who are seemingly the worst of sinners. After all, doesn't Scripture tell us to avoid sinners? Well, no, it doesn't, except maybe in some specific circumstances. Scripture tells us to flee sin, not to flee sinners. How can we make the most of every opportunity if we avoid sinners? How can we be in the world, as Jesus spoke of in John 17? Let me look at just a few verses there from John chapter 17, in which uh, Jesus was praying to his Father, and he prayed for his disciples. In John 17, beginning at verse 15, he, he said, My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. And then in verse 18, as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. Now, when we match that with Paul's warning to the Ephesians, the days are evil, that's a warning that's meant to protect us, we see that God has given us advance notice that these things are true. 
Remember our opening exercise last week? We had Adrian, blinded by the blindfold that she was wearing, meeting Mariana, who was also blindfolded. Now, if you can see, your spiritual vision is well-maintained and it's healthy. The world's still a dangerous place, even if you can see. But as believers, at least we can see the pitfalls in worldly things. We can avoid, because we can see them, we can avoid these pitfalls and falling into the pits in our evil world as we maintain our spiritual vision to the point that we can actually see clearly. We can see where we're going. As long as we allow the Word of God to be that lamp to our feet and that light to our path. So remember, Jesus specifically prayed two things in these verses in John 17 about being in the world. He prayed that not that uh, God would take us out of the world, but that we would be protected from the evil one. And then he prayed, as you sent me, in other words, God God the Father, as you sent me, God the Son, into the world, I have sent them, my followers, into the world. So even recognizing the danger, after all, he prayed that God would protect us from the evil one. Jesus clearly meant for us to be in the world. In fact, we're not just in the world, we're sent into the world. We are to be his witnesses. God's plan was never to remove his disciples or us from danger or opposition. In other words, take us out of the world, but to preserve us in the midst of conflict. How does he preserve us? One way is by helping us speak, right? by His Word, by His Spirit. The truth is there's an undeniable and unavoidable tension that exists when we think about this whole idea of being in the world but not of it. We've heard that phrase before, right? If we decide we're going to be in the world without being careful to not be of it, we run the risk of shipwrecking our faith. Or to use Jesus' word picture that we looked at last week, falling into a pit. Now, if we decide we're not going to be of the world, and as a result, we choose to isolate ourselves for our own spiritual protection, we run the risk of having our faith remain intact, perhaps, but being largely useless in reaching lost sinners with the message of the gospel. Unfortunately, I don't see any way out of this tension. This tension is very real, and it does exist, and we need to recognize that. We must be in the world to be effective ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We must also not be of the world for the sake of protecting our faith to keep ourselves spiritually safe. We have to recognize this tension between two seemingly opposite things, and we have to seek to find God's straight and narrow road, his path for each of us. There's a radio radio host and writer named Dick Staub, no relation to Steve, who in the introduction to his book, Two Christian, Two Pagan, writes this. For followers of Jesus, this volatile world poses a grave threat. When living counter to culture, Christians are despised and hated by the world. When confronting the culture, Christians risk succumbing to the seductive desires of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of riches. Most of us know people who jettison their faith for the momentary pleasures of this age. And all of us experience and sometimes give in to the kinds of temptations that, if unchecked, lead to the contamination of our spirits. He continues, Today, Christian responses to the world include de facto withdrawal into a protective cocoon, 
combat in the culture war or a widespread chameleon-like conformity. Our instincts for personal spiritual survival warn us to stay clear of this alternatingly inhospitable and enticing place. Yet ironically, this soul-threatening society also offers our greatest opportunities for influence because an unraveling society produces a spiritually restless people needing Jesus transforming grace, Jesus' good news. In my observation, he concludes, most Christians are either too Christian or too pagan. The Christians who are too Christian are very comfortable within the Christian subculture but are ill at ease when in the world. On the other hand, Christians who are too pagan are at ease with the world but fail to integrate their faith into their everyday life. So figure out where you fit in along that continuum as we continue here this morning. So one of the first ways we think of to make the best use of the time is don't be too Christian or too pagan to do the world any good. If you're one or the other, you're not going to do the world any good. I think we sometimes tend to overestimate our self-produced influence anyway. But I think the reverse is true. We underestimate how God can use a willing servant. We look at some of these cultural issues and we think the culture is so far gone, what good can we possibly do? And there's a little bit of truth in that. We in and of ourselves can do nothing. But God is able to reach into human hearts and make changes. That's something we cannot do. God can take hearts of stone and turn them into hearts of flesh. How do we know this? Well, first of all, Scripture tells us. We read in Ezekiel chapter 36, beginning with verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. That's his promise to us. What a wonderful promise that is. The other reason we can know this is true is it because it happened to us. It happened to us. Some of us have been Christians so long that we tend to forget this. But we who are followers of Christ once had hearts of stone. We were slaves of sin too. Just like those gay rights activists, that we have such a hard time with, just like those abortion supporters we can't understand. We read in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning with verse 9, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such are some of you. This is what Paul writes to the Christians in Corinth. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. If God can change our hearts, if God can take our hearts of stone and soften them into hearts of flesh, is he not able to change the hearts of our opponents in the culture war. These are things we must remember as we face this new reality that true Christianity is already the minority view in our Western world. 
That's just a fact. You don't have to look around or be particularly discerning to see that. It feels like we're on the defensive with these issues, doesn't it? There's a pastor out of Washington, D.C. named Mark Beaver. He had a great article which outlined what he called seven principles for surviving the cultural shift. Let me share a few of these with you as part of the answer of how do we walk wisely, how do we redeem the time. First of all, he said that we must remember that churches exist to work for supernatural change. He writes, the whole Christian faith is based on the idea that God takes people who are spiritually dead and gives them new life. Whenever we evangelize, we are evangelizing the cemetery. I like that. Whenever we evangelize, we are evangelizing cemeteries. There's never been a time or a culture when it was natural to repent of your sins. That culture doesn't exist. It's never existed. Christians must know that we've always been about a work that's supernatural. And I would add that this means it's always God's work and it's not ours. And knowing that, I think, doesn't that elevate the importance of prayer? If we can't do something, if we know God can't, what should we do? We should ask God. Yes, we can cooperate with the work of the Holy Spirit or not, but it's always His work. He alone can change the human heart. So thinking about it this way, the moral free fall that we see in our culture today hasn't made our job any harder. It's really the same as it's always been. Right? The second point Beaver makes is one we've already referenced a few moments ago. He said that persecution is normal. Persecution is normal. He wrote that it's often secondary issues, not the gospel itself, that brings persecution. It's usually not. It's especially true in our culture. It's not as if the persecutors say, because you believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, I'm going to persecute you. Instead, it's another belief or practice that's related to our faith that contradicts what people want or that threatens somehow their way of seeing the world or their lifestyle, so they oppose it. So even as we recognize this reality that persecution is normal, let's avoid the temptation to play the victim here. And let's just recognize that this is what God promised us, that all who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We don't know anything about that here, really, yet. We may. But let's remember that this is something that's that's clear in Scripture. Third, Beaver writes, we must eschew utopianism. Yes, as Christians, we should work as individual believers to make our world a better place. However, even as we work for these things, we must remember that we're not going to transform this world into the kingdom of God. That's God's work. God hasn't called us to make this world perfect. He's commissioned us primarily to point to the one who will one day make it perfect, even as we spend our lives loving and doing good. There are things that all of us will do as followers of Christ to make the best use of the time. But redeeming the time may look different for each one of us, at least in some ways it will look different. I think there's some ways in which it's the same for all of us. There are some, for example, who are called to very specific issues, and we have a lot of examples of that right here at TCF. I think of Diane Shepard, who serves as the board president of Men's Pregnancy Resource Center, on the front lines of giving 
women of true choice from the abortion challenge. I think of Mike Rose, who serves as executive director of the Mental Health Association, an organization that seeks to serve the least of these, the mentally ill among us and the homeless among us, to provide a better life and a hope and a future for them. I think of Kirk Wester, who's called to reach the poor and disadvantaged, but very specifically in this neighborhood, in this part of the city, developing opportunities for them to grow and develop and to change positively. And then I think of Linda Steed, who serves another category of the least of these, those with developmental disabilities, those who in many places are the discarded, unable to function without the love and care that they receive and the things that they learn at a place like Little Lighthouse. I could cite a lot of other examples here this morning, right here at our own body. So the idea here is that individual believers do have a mandate from God to be instrumental in changing a specific part of their culture. God may give that to you. He may give that to you. But the church, okay, that's all of us. All of us are part of the church is called to the gospel. The church is called to the gospel. We're all called to point to the only one who can truly bring change in our culture. Because true heart change happens how? One heart at a time. That's how true heart change happens. When those individual hearts, changed by God's grace, reach a critical mass, that's when a culture truly experiences change. It happens one heart at a time. And then when you see the numbers grow, that's when a culture begins to change. So as Beaver writes, he says, it's appropriate to feel sadness over the growing approval given to sin in our day. But one of the reasons many Christians in America feel disillusionment over current cultural changes is that we've been somewhat utopian in our culture. The fourth principle he mentions is make use of our democratic stewardship. Paul tells us to submit to the state. But in our democratic context, that's where we all live here in America, Part of submitting to the state means sharing in its authority. To neglect the democratic process so long as it's in our hands is to neglect a stewardship. We can't create utopia, but that doesn't mean we cannot be good stewards of what we have or that we cannot use the democratic processes to bless others. A fifth principle is this. Trust the Lord, not human circumstances. Beaver notes that there has never been a set of circumstances in which Christians cannot trust God. Some of us look around at the world today and we think, how can we trust God in this? Nothing's new. There's nothing new under the sun. Remember, we looked at that last week. Our God is faithful. He is trustworthy in everything today, yesterday, forever, period. Sixth, we must remember that everything we have results from God's grace. We have to remember that anything, anything good that we get short of hell is really worth celebrating. Because all that we have is of the grace of our loving and merciful God. Keeping this in mind in the midst of all these things will keep us from getting bitter towards people that we know, our employers, our friends, our family, our government even, when they oppose us. Think about this. How could the apostles sing in prison? We read about that, don't we? They knew they had been forgiven. They knew that God's glory awaited them. They knew that these things are better by far. This is a perspective we must remember. It's an eternal perspective that we must keep ever in mind as we deal with the reality in our culture. The final thing Beaver writes is this. Rest 
in the certainty of Christ's victory. Scripture tells us that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. You know what? It's not as if today when we look around and we see all the things happening, it's not as if, well, gee, Satan finally got the upper hand. The institution of same-sex marriage, the abortion culture, the rampant immorality. These things are not the hill that the church of Jesus Christ is going to die on. We noted last week that there's nothing new under the sun, and followers of Jesus have suffered and are suffering even right now much more than we've ever thought of. When we pray each November, you know, we have that Sunday when we mark Persecuted Church Sunday. We pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters in various nations around the world. When we pray those prayers, we don't assume that God has lost there, do we? If he hasn't lost there, why do we think he's lost here? The kingdom of God is in no danger of failing. Kingdom rocks, right? It's sturdy. It's going to stand. The kingdom of God is in no danger at all of failing. This must be something we know and deeply believe. No one whom God will save will not be saved because of these seeming setbacks in our culture. We may not be able to out-argue others. They may not be persuaded by our books and articles, but we can love them with the supernatural love God has shown to us in Christ. And we can make his word known today with humility, with confidence, and with joy. One of the things I realized as I prayed and studied this week, as we see these cultural challenges and we see in so many different ways, we've really lost the cultural argument on a lot of issues. But one of the things I've thought about is the way we make the best use of our time is not complicated. It's not complicated. We're looking for that magic bullet to redeem the time. But most of you, many of you have seen those TV commercials with the kids, right? They're really funny. They're really cute. Those TV commercials with the kids where the key phrase at the end is, it's not complicated. I think our tendency to look for a magical kind of answer makes us think that our response is way more complicated than it need be. It's the gospel, folks. It's the gospel. It's the good news. It's not complicated. The gospel is our means, our method, our goal, our hope. And really, all it means to redeem the time, to make the best use of the time, is to be ordinary Christians. To be ordinary Christians. Now, that may be disappointing to some of you, because maybe you were hoping you'd hear a magic answer. But a clear study of the Word of God tells us just this. We see it in so many places. In fact, I found more than two dozen specific passages of Scripture where the word walk that we uh, read in Ephesians 5 is used, meaning essentially how we behave and live our lives. So you may want to do this study on your own and look that up. Even the opening verse in the chapter where we focus our primary text says this, the opening verse of that chapter, going back to uh, verse 1 and 2 of Ephesians 5, says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. And walk in love, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. I said it wasn't complicated. I didn't say it was easy. But Paul tells us that we redeem the time when we walk in love, as Christ loved us. And if we wonder how Christ loved us, Paul reminds us, even here in this passage, he gave himself up for us. 
he loves us sacrificially. Jim Garrett's noted a couple of times from this pulpit about everybody's favorite passage, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Where it says God so loved, what it means essentially there is this is how God loved. The word God so loved. This is how God loved. He gave. He gave. He loved by giving his son sacrificially. That's how God loved us. We don't have time to explore all those uh, couple dozen verses that I mentioned, but we're going to take a look at where we're encouraged to walk in a certain way in the light of the world we live in. Let me highlight a few of those. Romans chapter 8, verses 3 and 4. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So we see that in God's grace, we must be guided by His Spirit. Next, we have a related idea. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, where it tells us we walk by faith, not by sight. We understand that we have to have trust. We have to have complete faith in Him, not in what appears to be happening in our culture. Related to that, we recognize in chapter 10 of uh, 2 Corinthians, beginning with verse 3, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. This is important because we too often see those gay rights advocates or those abortion proponents or other sinners as the enemy. We see them as the enemy. These people are not our enemies. We're not waging war according to the flesh, Paul tells us. Our enemy is sin. And of course, our enemy is also the one who tempts us to sin, the devil. So we need to remember that. These people are not our enemies. Sometimes we tend to talk as if that's true or even behave as if that's true. Here's another interesting thought from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should what? Walk in them. In other words, live them out. God's already prepared every good work that we'll ever do. We're just instructed to live it out. It's not complicated. We're his workmanship. We're created for these good works. Our job is to walk it out in our daily life. In other passages, we see simple, everyday, ordinary instructions connected with this word walk. For example, in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, where Paul writes, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. How? With all humility gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. How about that? Humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. It's kind of boring. It's not too exciting. It's not too revolutionary, is it? Maybe it's not the magic bullet that we were hoping for, that we were looking for. Yet these are God's instructions on how to live as his followers. And just one more passage because in many ways this is a parallel passage to our primary text from Ephesians 5. 
you want to look at uh, Colossians chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, where it says, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of your time. You see that idea there again. Let your speech be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Again, that sounds pretty ordinary stuff, doesn't it? That doesn't sound like a big deal. Gracious, seasoned with salt. Terry Wiggins spoke uh, about that a couple weeks ago. Since we focused on Ephesians, let me close this morning with some thoughts related to that epistle. If you read through the first three chapters of Ephesians, and you might want to do that, but if you do that, if you read Paul expounding on the great Christian themes of redemption, of justification, sanctification, our union with Christ, and much more. They're amazing, important theological truths. But then you move into the rest of Ephesians, beginning with chapter 4, 4 through 6, you see more ordinary things. After all these great things it tells us God's done for us, we see ordinary things. We see God wants us to be truthful. We see God instructing us to exercise our gifts in the church. We see God telling us to be honest to love our spouses, to honor our parents. There's another Father's Day reference for you. To be a faithful employer, to be good citizens. These aren't magic solutions. They're not the kind of fodder for a best-selling Christian book. They're not the kind of thing that's going to be a theme of a big Christian conference. Yet this is what God calls each one of us to. Ordinary Christian behavior. Ordinary Christian behavior, at least that's what the Word tells us, is supposed to be ordinary for us as believers. We still have to live up to it. Of course, we don't see this just in Ephesians. We see it strongly there, but we see it in many other places throughout the New Testament. Francis Schaeffer wrote, and uh, if you've never read Francis Schaeffer, some of his insights into culture, even though they were 30, 40, 50 years ago, I'm pretty sure it's even newer today. But anyway, he wrote this, Our love must have a form that the world may observe. It must be feeling. I want to say that as we struggle with the proper preaching of the gospel, and isn't that what we struggle with, the importance of observable love must come into our message. We must not forget what he called the final apologetic. The final apologetic. Finally, consider this. Extraordinary ordinariness will have a much greater impact than mere extraordinariness. Yep, say that five times real fast. Yes, the latest Christian sports star will get a million blog posts written about him every time he breathes. Yes, the latest kid to write about his last trip to heaven and back will make millions for his parents. Yet the newest mega church pastor will wow CNN for a few weeks. But the greatest and the most permanent good will come from the impact and influence of extraordinarily ordinary Christians excelling in their ordinary days and doings. I don't know about you, but I find that thought very encouraging. I find that thought very encouraging. I don't always have to have the perfect answer, though it is certainly good to look to the Lord for godly responses to moral challenges. I do that. We should all do that. I don't have to start a big ministry. I don't have to start an organization to affect change. Though, again, there may be some of us who are called to do just that or participate in those kinds of things. I can simply seek the grace of God 
to live out my ordinary life and still have an impact one heart at a time, one neighbor at a time, one friend at a time, right? One family member. And by doing that, I can redeem the time in these evil days. I can simply, as if you read in First Thessalonians chapter 4, uh, verses 11 and 12, we're, we're encouraged to aspire to live quietly, to mind our own affairs, to work with your hands, as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders. There it is again. Pretty boring. Pretty ordinary, isn't it? Of course, outsiders here are unbelievers. But what, is, what are we encouraged to do? Live quietly. Mind our own affairs. Walk properly before outsiders. May this be our call. May this be our call. May this be our goal as we redeem the time in these evil days and walk wisely in our work. Amen? Heavenly Father, we're grateful for your word, which gives so much clarity about these things, about how to walk wisely. We know the days are evil, Lord. We recognize that. That's a, that's a reality. We know that in many ways we've lost many cultural artifacts. This is no longer in any way, if it ever was, a truly Christian nation. But, Lord, we also know that we are called to be in this world, but not to be of it. And, Lord, as we are in this world, we need to redeem the time, make the best use of the time that you give us on this earth. And, Lord, we grasp at how to do that sometimes, especially in, with the onslaught of the moral condition of our nation seems overwhelming sometimes. Help us to remember these things that we've looked at this morning, Father, how to walk wisely with you, redeeming the time, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Lord, help us to know your will for each of our individual lives, what we are to put our hands to and what we are to let go. And Lord, may the spirit of Christ that resides within each of us truly help us to bear the light of Christ go about our daily tasks, Lord, to do the things you've called us to. Help us to be sensitive to doing what you've called us to do. And even in that, Lord, help us to be obedient. We thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you, Father, for these greatest things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.